hard-hitting, Jesus-obeying, Jesus-proclaiming people. Amen. Perhaps you remember 1979, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, remember, at one time they were really good. Uh, one time they uh, won some World Series. And in 1979, their theme was, We Are Family. And I uh, read an article this week about how the players together felt like they were a united family. And apparently if any player kind of drifted outside of that family feel, feel then uh, Willie Stargell was quick to bring them back into alignment and back into the understanding that they were family. And uh, it became the, a Pittsburgh-wide craze that we are family. And there was even a, a neat little disco song that went with it. And the sense of family, and I don't know if you've ever thought about, you know, what is it that makes a baseball team family? What is it that can possibly make a sports team a family? What is it that can make anybody a family? What is a family? And I know that for many of us, even the concept of family isn't the most positive thing. For many people, the mention of family brings up uh, reminders of dysfunction and pain and bitterness and unforgiveness. What is a family? Because this morning, as we continue to look at the amazing grace of God, we want to look at the amazing grace of God specifically poured out to us and manifested to us in the fact that in Christ, we now become part of a family together. Listen to what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Go back to verse 1 for a moment. See what love the Father has given to us. The love that we've talked about in this series, this agape love of God manifested in that he has freely given us by his grace that we should be called children of God. We should be called children of God through Christ. Can you imagine that? That we can go from being sinners who are separated from God, that by the grace of God, we can now be adopted into his family and now become his children, not just people that he tolerates, not just people that he puts up with, but people that he loves and cherishes as his own children, which means that if each one of us individually become children of God, if you think about the family dynamics, that makes us siblings. That we become, as children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, which means we are a family. For those who don't know what a family is, we become children. For those who have never experienced family, they become part of the family of God. We're children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you that as you look around this room, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ? Not just people who happen to go to the same church as you. Not just friends that you might have. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Siblings. Family. 
And I love how John has this emphasis that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. It is what we are. Children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Unless you're marrying into a family, then you've chosen the family. But by and large, you can't choose. If you have a sibling, you, you didn't choose to have that sibling. They were simply uh, the choice that your parents had to uh, have that child. And so you have two options if you grow up in a family with siblings. You can either love your sibling or you can decide you're going to hate your sibling. Deciding to hate your sibling really doesn't benefit your life at all. I know that every sibling has their quarrels at some point, but in some point in life, you get past that and realize that here's a gift of a sibling, of someone that could be your best friend in life. Or you can choose from the very beginning, I'm going to love this sibling no matter what, even in the midst of all of their faults and mistakes, because they love me in spite of all of my faults and mistakes. We have the same choice as children of God. We can choose to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Or we can choose for whatever reason that I'm going to hate this brother, hate this sister, keep my distance from this person. And the question that it raises is why? Why? Why choose to hate another brother or sister in Christ? John goes on at the end of verse 1 to say, The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Okay, the world doesn't recognize who we are as children of God because it doesn't know who God is as our father. But verse two, it says, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. I love that. That who we are as children of God has not yet fully been revealed. In other words, I'm a work in progress. And so are you. And so is every child of God. We are works in progress until one day that will be revealed who we truly are as children of God. Because one day, he says, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Have you ever had that moment? And it happens at different times. It's happened to me at different times. And it happens to varying degrees. It's kind of this ongoing process. And that is... You say something, and you realize that was a parent who just said that through your mouth. You said the same thing that your mother always said. You said the same thing your father always says, or you acted in such a way that exactly like your father or your, your mother acted. And you find yourself over time, whether you like it or not, becoming a little bit more and more like one or both of your parents. It's partly natural because those are the ones that we observe throughout our lives. That we are raised in that atmosphere of their conduct and behavior and so we eventually become like them. And what John is saying is that we are in the process of becoming more and more like our Heavenly Father until one day we are with Him in eternity and we will be like Him. That finally we will get to heaven as brothers and sisters in Christ and all of our flaws, all of our mistakes, all of our sins will finally be done with. And we will be who we truly are as his children. We'll truly act like we're supposed to act as his children. And all those disagreements, all the differences, all the things that threaten to separate us in life will be a distant memory. John chapter 1 verse 12. 
He says, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. There is an act of God's power that was at work in transforming us from people who were rebellious against God to now becoming his children. There was a process that had to happen, even in our understanding that the process of adoption is not easy. The process of adoption is very involved and complicated. But in a sense, the process that God activated was very simple, yet very profound. He paid the price of a son so that you could become a son or daughter of the living God. It's the price that he paid for you. It's the price that he paid for every single one of us as his children. So what kind of value, what kind of worth does that put on us as children? If that's the price that God paid for us, it puts tremendous value, tremendous worth on one another. And for the day that before we even get to heaven, that we can begin to see each other the way our heavenly father sees each one of us individually. Romans chapter eight, verse 16 talking about the Holy Spirit, says it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God gave us the Holy Spirit for a number of reasons, one of which is to bear witness in the core of our soul that we're a child of God. So many times we wonder, is, it, is what I'm hearing the voice of God, is it the Holy Spirit speaking to me? One way to indicate, based on Romans 8, is the Holy Spirit is going to be speaking to you that you are a son or daughter of God. So think about the implications of that. If, if you were praying about, you know, should I rob this bank? Well, if you sense the Holy Spirit saying yes, that wasn't the Holy Spirit, because he's not going to speak to you to act in a way that's contrary to what it means to be a child of God. Does that make sense? He's going to speak to you about what it means to be a child of God, which also means that all of those condemning, accusing, negative thoughts about who you are are not from the Holy Spirit. If they're convicting you to repent and come back to God, yes, that's the Holy Spirit. But if it's causing you to live in guilt and shame and defeat, that is not the Spirit of God speaking. He is going to testify to your spirit, your soul, that you're a child of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And I love that we keep coming back to the sense that being a child of God is a gift of God's grace. Being a part of the family of God is a gift of God's grace. Because what that means is it had everything to do with God and nothing to do with me. There's nothing I did to earn it or deserve it. In other words, it's not like God looked at a, a lineup of every person who would ever live and said, you know, they're well-dressed, they act nice, I'm going to adopt them. Or, you know, they don't look so great, I'm going to pass over them. There's nothing I brought to the table. There's nothing that any one of us brought to the table. We were adopted as children of God as we were, and God is now actively working in us, which also means that we are imperfect. Rewind if you had a sibling to when you were about eight years old and your sibling's flaws were screaming at you on a daily basis and they drove you crazy. They were in a process of maturing, just like you were. Just like your flaws and your faults were constantly annoying your sibling. 
we're both in a process of maturing. Which means that if we're children of God, if we're a family of God, we're all in the process of maturing. And I think this is part of why Scripture is so abundant with be patient with one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, because we're all in a process. We're all being transformed to the likeness of Christ, and it's going to take a lifetime to get there. Which means... I'm going to do some things that annoy somebody and somebody's going to do things that annoy me. But if we're siblings in Christ, we have to work this out because we're siblings, we're a family. John 13, verse 35. Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Or I don't think we'd be abusing the passage to also insert other titles for followers of Jesus. And in this case, by this, everyone will know that you are my child, that you're my child, that you're my disciple, if you have love for one another. And I love and I'm convicted that this is what Jesus says. He says, everyone's going to know that you're truly my follower. Everyone's going to know you're truly my disciple. Everyone's going to truly know that you're my child by this, your love for one another. He could have said, by your expertise in the law. As good Jewish people, his disciples, were raised in the the Jewish law. He didn't say that the mark of my children, the mark of my disciples will be their mastery of the law. Because the world had that. They were called the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're the ones that Jesus was often most angry with. He says, this is how people are going to recognize you. By the love that you have for one another. Is that true of followers of Jesus in 2022? Do people say, you know, yes, there's other things that are important. But rising to the top of all of it, they have to be a child of God because nobody else can love like that. It's amazing if you go back to the first century and read some of the accounts of martyrs, even Roman authors who were not Christians talking about persecuted Christians talked about how horrible they were, how how heretical they were. But the one thing they came back to is you cannot deny the love they had for those around them. Jesus says, the most defining mark of my child, the most defining mark of my follower, of my people, is going to be the love they have for one another. In fact, I want us to go back to that first century with this image up here of persecution. We have become spoiled, to be honest, Because there are so many churches, if you're going to one church and somebody bugs you at that church, you can just go to a different church and try to find a church where nobody there bothers you, but you're not going to find it because, oh, give it a year, and then after a year, you're going to start to see the truth and someone's going to start bugging you, and you can go to another church and try to find a place where people aren't going to bother you and As long as you walk in the door and you're there and people are there, somebody's going to bug you at some point. They didn't have that option. In the first century, their lives literally depended on their brothers and sisters in Christ. 
their survival from Monday to Tuesday hinged on their brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if a Christian was captured and tortured and said, tell us where the rest of your gathering is, tell us where the rest of your church is, that person has the power now to end your life if they so choose. Your survival depends on their sticking up for their family. They're not giving up your whereabouts. So you can't just say, well, I don't like Cephas, so I'm going to go to the church around the corner. There wasn't a church around the corner. There was a handful of you, and you all met in the same house. This is why you see such a theme in Paul's letters about knock it off. You know, I've heard reports there, some among you who are fighting, stop it. Pull together and tell them to work it out. Their lives depended. I heard an interview with a preacher this week who visited a country where there was Christian persecution. He was talking to a pastor about how hard it must be to pastor and be a Christian in a place where there was so much persecution. And he said, no, not at all. He said, I find it hard that you can be a Christian in a country with so much freedom. I said, what do you mean? He said, how do you know who to trust? How do you know who's real and who's not? We've lost the sense that our lives depend on each other. Now, physically, our lives may not depend on each other because we're not living in that scenario. But do you know that spiritually, our lives do depend on one another? That what the enemy loves to do is separate us out from one another. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And we automatically apply this to marriage. And obviously, there's a principle there. But God creates Adam. And Adam's created good, but God has one complaint about Adam. It's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates Eve. But then as the scriptures unfold, it goes past just a husband and wife because when we get to Abraham, God decides to create a people. And from Abraham on, the people of God are always a collective unit. And that carries over to the followers of Jesus, then to the church in the book of Acts. The people of God are always in a unit together. So much so that you even see in the Psalms. The psalmist isn't just saying, God, why have you abandoned me? He's saying, why have you abandoned us? For the Israelites, it was very difficult and nearly impossible for them to operate with this individualistic spirituality. That it's just me and Yahweh and nothing else matters. It was us. So much so that Daniel, who's never, we're never told of any sin he commits, as his people are suffering, he says, forgive us collectively. And when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, pray this way. And what's the very first word in that model prayer he gives? Our. Our Father, who art in heaven. He didn't say, hey, when you have your personal private prayer time, say, my Father in heaven. He says, our Father. There's always this collective community call of the people of God. And yes, we've lost some of that urgency of the first century, but spiritually, we should still have that urgency that we need one another. Think about even what Jesus teaches about church discipline. In Matthew 18, we talk about church discipline, and it's very difficult to pull off today. 
Why? Because when Jesus said, if somebody among you is sinning, then go to them privately. If they don't repent, bring somebody else. If they don't repent, you'll involve the whole church in it. And if they don't repent, then treat them like an outsider. In this environment, that should scare you to death. If you don't repent, then you're on your own. This is what's waiting for you. And that should scare you to death. But in our context, you know, somebody confronts you about a sin, I'm out of here. I'm going to that church over there where they don't know about what I did. And if they find out, then I'm going to go to that church over there. We've lost that sense of what it means to live as a community, as a family of God. And I love how even in the first century, you have imperfect followers of Jesus living as family together. In the first century, imperfect Christians with imperfect theology living together in unity. How do I know that? Because the majority of Paul's letters are written to correct some askew theology amongst the Christians. We see all these creeds popping up through the early centuries of the church because people were confused about different points of theology, and so they tried to come together to clarify this is what that teaching means. Think back to the first disciples. How, much, how extensive was their theology? Most of these very first Christians could not articulate the Trinity. Based on what? What would their understanding of the Trinity be? Who would have elaborated that for them? They had a very limited theology. But they were united by their Heavenly Father. And they were siblings. Now, I'm not saying it's okay to have bad theology. I'm saying that even imperfect people with imperfect theology still function together as family. And I think about our day today. And what is it that will cause us to sell one another out today? What imperfection, what flaw? Are we willing to throw a brother or sister in Christ under the bus because they use a different translation than we do? I think I shared before when I did street ministry in Cleveland, we set up this prayer booth at a local park and we had Bibles and gospel literature available. And somebody came up who was a King James only Christian and they saw that we were giving away English standard version Bibles. And so they stood in front of our booth and tried to dissuade anybody who walked by because we weren't giving away the real word of God, the King James version. We'll throw each other under the bus over Bible translations. We'll throw each other under the bus for any little nuance, any little point. It's as if we're saying being part of the family of God is Jesus plus this and this and this and this and this. When here's the reality, if you look around this room, if you look around at the family of God <clears throat> today, these are the people you're going to spend eternity with. Just think about it. If we can go to the, the pearly gates on the next slide. You're going to walk through those gates one day and be in the presence of Jesus. And all of those Christians that you avoided, that you thought were horrible scoundrels, and they're not even Christians, are going to be right there next to you. What then? I, I often wonder if there's some Christian that I just, that gives me great angst. I almost wonder if God's going to say, you know what? I'm going to pair you guys up for eternity because I want you to figure this out. We're going to spend eternity together. When we get to eternity, 
this life is going to be a blip on the radar. And are we going to look back one day and say, why did we get so angry at each other over this little thing? This is what matters. Jesus, his kingdom, his glory, this was all that mattered all along. Why wasn't that our focus? And this great, magnificent, eternal family is what we have been brought into by the grace of God. So that now, no matter what your earthly family was like, no matter what your relationship with your siblings, you can now experience what God always intended a family to be. All by his grace, to have a place, to have this belonging in this spiritual and eternal family as a beloved child of God surrounded by beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that that would impact how we live, how we treat each other, how we view one another in light of the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend, Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer. You know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was look, looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high-impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope to learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.